And also glad to have Lydia with us here tonight, whose travails are yet to come. But uh, she's due this Thursday, and uh, no telling, of course, when. But we certainly want to keep her in mind and give her all the love and support that we possibly can uh, to encourage her. And, of course, we want to remember um, Crystal Malone, Adam and Crystal, are on a little vacation this weekend. They have never really had one and thought they better get one in before they have their child. And so that's where they're at this weekend. We want to keep her in mind, of course, as well. Uh, I want to begin tonight with a quotation that I think in a lot of ways sort of says, says it all with regard to speculation about the Antichrist. There is no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born. Firmly established already in his early years, he will, after reaching maturity, achieve supreme power. That's the kind of statement that you could see almost on any kind of uh, televangelist program that focuses on prophecy today. But in fact, this statement comes from a man named Martin of Tours, who lived in the 300s A.D. What it illustrates is that speculation about the so-called Antichrist has been rampant almost from when those words were first recorded in the New Testament. Now, the reason I wanted to choose um, this topic for tonight's study is because uh, an email has been circulating which capitalizes on current political events to make similar kinds of allegations. Uh, I got an email not long ago that said this. According to the book of Revelations... Now, here's just one friendly tip of advice. If they call it the book of Revelations, it's probably not going to be right, whatever else comes next. That's just kind of the standard thing to look for here. But according to the book of Revelations, the Antichrist is, the Antichrist will be a man in his 40s of Muslim descent who will deceive the nations with persuasive language and have a massive Christ-like appeal. The prophecy says that people will flock to him and he will promise false hope and world peace. And when he is in power, he will, will, he will destroy everything. Is it Obama? Now, the purpose of tonight's lesson is not to cast my lot for any of the people running for president of the United States. But I do feel like from time to time when there is some spike in interest on the topic of the Antichrist, that it is worthy of our attention biblically uh, to give this some consideration. Now, Jerry Falwell, several years ago, made the headlines when he said that he thought the Antichrist was already alive. And that uh, he said, because when he appears during the tribulation period, he will be a full-grown counterfeit of Christ. Of course, he'll be Jewish. So his view is a little bit different from the email. That, by the way, how many of y'all received an email like that? Like the one I just mentioned. Have any of y'all received this? All right, a few of you have. Uh, Falwell says, of course, he'll be Jewish. Of course, he'll pretend to be Christ. And in fact, if in fact the Lord is coming soon, he'll be an adult at the presentation of himself. He must be alive somewhere today. Now, as you can see, these typical uh, ideas about the Antichrist actually differ from each other in a lot of respects. Most of the time, the view that is typically taught And what I'm thinking of is especially in books like the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. Most of the time, the typical view that is taught is not that the Antichrist will be Jewish or Muslim, but that he will be a European, a very charismatic European, that he will unite the world under one government, 
and that he will also unite the world under one religion in which he ultimately becomes the object of worship. And most of these people believe that the Antichrist will appear to die and then come back to life, and that will be the basis upon which the world is kind of swept up under his uh, charismatic leadership. Now, you might ask, where in the world would people get this kind of idea from the Bible? And the answer is Revelation chapter 13. So I want you to turn there with me and look at the text that is so often used as the source material for these ideas about the Antichrist. One thing that you will notice right off the bat is that the term Antichrist is not used here in Revelation chapter 13. Now, I understand that to kind of jump right in the middle of the book of Revelation is a little bit of a, a daunting or intimidating task. But I think that the symbolism here is so straightforward that it won't be a problem for us tonight. You kind of have to go back one chapter to understand what is happening here. In the previous chapter, John pictures a great red dragon who has seven heads representing cunning, ten horns representing power, and diadems representing some kind of authority. This great red dragon is the color of red because red is the color of blood, and clearly he is a murderer. His tail is so huge that he can sweep away a third of the stars of heaven. And he's poised to pounce on a woman about to give birth to a man-child who is to rule the nations with the rod of iron. That statement is the clue as to exactly what that vision is about. The man-child is Jesus, the Messiah. The woman represents that righteous remnant through whom the Messiah has come from the time of Eve all the way down to the time of, of course, his mother. And the great and terrible dragon is symbolic of Satan himself, which is what John makes clear in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. Now, when the great dragon is unable to destroy the male child who is born and immediately caught up to heaven, a symbol of Jesus' triumphant ascension into heaven, <clears throat> the dragon then decides to make war on those who follow the testimony of the Lamb. And in chapter 12, at the very end of that chapter, the dragon summons a creature from the abyss of the sea. And that's what is described for us in chapter 13 of Revelation. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its heads and blasphemous names on its heads. That description is so similar to the dragon in chapter 12. Clearly they are going to be allies with one another. Verse 2 says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The background to that imagery is from Daniel chapter 7, in which Daniel pictures great world empires as different kinds of animals. He pictures uh, the Babylonian Empire as a, a, a lion. He pictures the uh, Persian Empire as a bear. He pictures Alexander's empire as a leopard. And then he pictures the Roman Empire as what he calls a great terrible beast. This image here in Revelation 13 is kind of a com composite indicating that this beast sort of summarizes and encapsulates the worst of all human empires. It says in verse 2, <clears throat> And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole world marveled as they followed the beast. 
And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? It goes on to say in verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Later on in chapter 13, it says in verse 11 that another beast comes, this one out of the earth, almost like in the book of Job, which talks about behemoth and Leviathan, the two great monsters from sea and land. You have two great monsters from sea and land here. This beast has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. The horns like a lamb indicates religious nature. And yet it's not true religion that follows Christ. It is religion inspired by the devil himself. Verse 12 says it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. It says later on in verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, typically, barring views like that expressed by Falwell, that the Antichrist would be a Jewish person, or by these recent emails being circulated that the Antichrist would be a Muslim, the typical view based on this text here in Revelation 13 is that this beast is so similar in its description to the beasts of Daniel 7 and especially the fourth beast, which represents the Roman Empire in Daniel 7, that this beast must be sort of a rejuvenated version of the Roman Empire. What could that be? Years ago, Hal Lindsey and people like him were all up in arms and excited because of the European common market, which in fact had ten nations. And they connected that with the, uh, the ten diadem here and said that will be the reconstituted Roman Empire are these European nations who band together. Now, unfortunately, it expanded to include a lot more than ten nations, which kind of blew that out of the water. But for a time, that was the really popular interpretation. And then the other details here, you can kind of see where they're going with them. This person appears to have been killed and then comes back to life. And the whole world follows after him under his government and under not only his government but also his religion. Well, who exactly is this beastly figure? Let me again remind you this text does not use the term antichrist. That is an assumption by those who try to teach that this is a reference to the antichrist. But nevertheless... Who is this beastly figure? During the time of the Protestant Reformation, it was very common to connect the beast with uh, the Roman Catholic Church and especially with the papacy and to argue that the beast here represented the Roman Catholic Church. Guess who the Roman Catholic Church said the beast represented? They said it represented the reformers, just sort of tit for tat. So maybe Martin Luther or somebody like that. Throughout history, of course, there were people who have tried to make the argument that it was one of the infamous European leaders in history, like Napoleon. In the 1930s, there were a lot of people who thought it was Benito Mussolini, particularly because he was from Italy, and he even consciously tried to sort of recreate the glory 
of Rome, and so a lot of people thought maybe it was him. Of course, during the World War II, we learned there was somebody even worse than Mussolini, and that was Hitler. Many people argued this. I remember that when I was a kid growing up during the time of the, uh, the later stages of the Cold War, that a lot of people thought Mikhail Gorbachev might be the beast. And I think part of it was because, you remember he had that kind of birthmark thing on his head? I think a lot of people thought the mark on his head was somehow connected to this mark here on the head in Revelation chapter 13. My granddad's theory as to who the Antichrist was was based on the number 666. My granddad was what in Kentucky we call a yellow dog Democrat, which meant he would vote for a yellow dog before he would ever vote for a Republican. So he hated all Republicans, and my granddad thought Ronald Wilson Reagan. Those are three names of six letters each. So that was Pop's theory as to who the Antichrist was which has every bit as much biblical validity as all these others that we've seen um, tonight. Now, in the uh, <coughs> late 1980s, early 1990s, a lot of books came out that suggested it was Saddam Hussein, particularly in the buildup of the first Gulf War. And then uh, when there was the second Gulf War, they just changed a few things around and then reissued those books and said it was, again, uh, Saddam Hussein. And, you know, on and on the list go. Uh, a lot of people now would like to connect it to uh, Ahmadinejad, the guy who is the uh, president of Iran. <clears throat> and, of course, as I said, some people even spread these emails around about Barack Obama. So what are we supposed to make of all this? Well, let's kind of go back to basics here. And remember that the first rule of Bible study is we need to always ask ourselves, what did this text mean to the people it was originally written to. So we need to take some time to talk about the context of the book of Revelation, and especially um, the passage that we've been studying together tonight. The book of Revelation was, of course, written for Christians in the first century who were suffering persecution. Over and over again, the book of Revelation emphasizes that what it's talking about are events of that day and time. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. In the very first verse of this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. In the very first verse of this book, we are told that this book is about things that are soon to take place. In verse 3 of the first chapter, <clears throat> Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of, his, of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so at the very start of this book, it is emphasized that this book is about events relevant to the people it was written to. The same thing can be found at the very end of this book. If you go over to chapter 22, the very last chapter of the book of Revelation in verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. How many more times did John have to emphasize that the context of the book of Revelation is not 21st century American politics, but it is the first century crisis that early Christians faced who lived in the time of the Roman Empire? What in the world would Hitler or Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or Barack Obama have to do with first century Christians suffering the oppression of the Roman Empire and its persecution. Why in the world would we ignore the obvious historical context of this book 
and look for a later fulfillment 20 centuries removed from the time of the book of Revelation when there is a perfectly logical fulfillment of this book in its own day and time. The sad fact is that so many people think that the way to study the Bible is to look at the front page of the newspaper and then look at the last few pages of the Bible and see how many connections you can make, which is an absolutely insane way to study a document that was written to real people in real circumstances and meant something to them. Now, as to who in particular the beast of Revelation is, it's very clear from the context here of Revelation chapter 13 that this beast is symbolic of the Roman Empire, generally, and it is symbolic of the most infamous of all the Roman emperors, Nero, specifically. Just a little bit of history, and I think that honestly this is one of the reasons that some of these outlandish interpretations are able to gain any traction at all, and that is because people realize that most people don't have a super familiar conversant knowledge of first century history. It's boring to the vast majority of people. And so it's a lot easier and more exciting to try to connect this book to what happens in our day and time rather than to take the time to kind of go back and ask yourself what was going on when this book was written. The emperor Nero came to the throne in the year 54 AD in the first few years of his reign were, were pretty positive. In fact, some historians referred to it as the five golden years. But then things took a very ugly turn in Nero's life, as it did with so many of these despots. And he became mad with power. He became drunk with his own visions of grandeur. For the perspective of the early Christians, the key event for them was a fire that took place in November of the year 64 A.D., when the city of Rome nearly was completely burnt. There were a lot of people who suspected that Nero had something to do with this. Uh, some people thought that maybe Nero wanted to burn Rome down so he could rebuild it and name it in his own honor. Nero became very nervous about these accusations and decided to look for a scapegoat to foist the blame on, and he found a convenient one. All of the, these people who have made this recent influx into the city of Rome who worship a different god than the gods of the Romans. They worship a man named Jesus and say that he is the true god. And so Nero began to blame the Christians in Rome and their influence, in fact, what he called atheism, because they didn't accept their gods, for what had happened in the fire of Rome and instigated the very first persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire. If you think about the book of Acts, the vast majority of the persecution in the book of Acts came from the Jewish authorities. There were times where the Jewish leaders would try to get Roman governors and magistrates to go along with them, but it was always at their instigation. But once this fire took place, things changed, and, they were, and the Christians uh, were victimized by Nero. And I'm sure that some of you have read or heard accounts of what he would do. He would send the Christians to their deaths in the Colosseum, he would have them dressed in the, in the skins of animals and then sick predatory animals like lions on them. He would light up the city of Rome at night with their charred bodies. He was a vicious and brutal monster. That was not only true, incidentally, of Christians. He became pretty much a vicious murderer toward anybody that he suspected was a threat to his own power. 
even going so far as to murder his own mother because he considered her to be a threat to, his, uh, to the security of his regime. Now, the reason that I am absolutely convinced <clears throat> that the number here, or that the description here in Revelation 13 is a reference to Rome generally and Nero particularly is because of the most famous of the details given here, and that is the number in verse 18. Look at it again. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Incidentally, it is not 666. It's 660 plus 6. That is what this number is here. In the Greek text. To understand this number, think about when you were in school and you learned Roman numerals. Roman numerals are actually Roman letters. But the letters are assigned a numerical value. The letter I is assigned the value of 1. The letter V is assigned the, number, the value of 5. The letter C, 100, and, and, and so forth. That was typical in a lot of ancient alphabets. There were not separate symbols for the numbers. The letters of the alphabet were assigned numerical value. When you take Nero's name from Hebrew to Greek, it would be spelled something like this. N-R-W-N-Q-S-R. And when you add up the numerical value of those letters, the numerical value of those letters is 666. Further confirmation that this is in fact the case is, if you look at your Bible in verse 18, do some of you have a footnote on the number 666 that it suggests that in some manuscripts there is another number? The other number, if your Bible has that kind of note, is the number 616. That just happens to be the spelling of Nero's name from Latin to Greek. So how coincidental is it that you happen to have two numbers reflected in the, the uh, manuscript evidence that just both happen to be the way that you would have spelled Nero's name and calculated it based on either taking his name from Hebrew to Greek or from Latin to Greek? It is not a coincidence. And obviously what you have here in Revelation chapter 13 is imagery that would have been very relevant for these first century Christians. And that is an image that describes the murderous regime of the Roman Empire personified by Nero himself. In fact, one of the ancient writers said this about Nero. In my travels, which have been wider than ever man yet accomplished, I have seen many, many wild beasts of Arabia and India. But this beast, that is commonly called a tyrant, I know not how many heads it has, nor if it be crooked, crooked of claw or armed with horrible fangs. And of wild beasts, you cannot say that they were ever known to eat their own mother, but Nero has gorged himself on this diet. That's how the ancient writers looked at who Nero was. They all acknowledged his beastly character. When you go back now to Revelation chapter 13, all of these descriptions make perfect sense in the context of first century persecution of Christians. First of all, it said that this beast represented somebody who was a great blasphemer. Nero was certainly that. He claimed to be the god Apollo and would go and perform in concerts and he would compete in athletic contests. Somehow always managed to win. 
I don't know how exactly that happened, but he seemed to always come in first place, and the crowds always seemed to give him big standing ovations, probably because he'd kill people if they, if they didn't do that. But he was a blasphemer who claimed himself to be God. Revelation 13 says that this beast makes war on the saints 42 months. That is almost exactly the period of time that transpired from the fire in AD 64 and Nero's persecution to when Nero eventually committed suicide in the summer of the year AD 68. In fact, what happened is the Roman Senate became so disgusted with him that they issued an arrest order for him to be taken in prisoner and eventually put to death. And rather than fall into the hands of the Senate, Nero committed suicide. Supposedly, his last words were, What a great artist the world has lost. So he was nuts pretty much right to the bitter end. But anyhow, it's about 42 much almost exactly from the time he began his persecution of Christians until when he committed suicide. Notice the Revelation 13 said that the beast recovers from its death wound. In our country, we are very blessed that when we have a transition of leadership, it's peaceful because of our Constitution. They didn't have that, though, in Rome. And in particular, when Nero committed suicide, he was the last uh, of the Caesars who was going to be on the throne, the last of the relatives of Julius Caesar. When he committed suicide, the Roman Empire teetered on the brink of complete disintegration as several different men vied for the throne to have the power of the Roman Empire. In fact, the historians call it the year of the five emperors. When Nero committed suicide, there was a quick succession of men who tried to take over and reign as the new emperor. And finally what happened is an old general named Vespasian, who was besieging the city of Jerusalem, decided to march on Rome and make his own claim to the throne. And he then became eventually the next, uh, the next dynastic leader of the Roman Empire. But that is a perfect symbol of the chaos that the Roman Empire survived when there was a seemingly mortal wound to one of the heads, and yet the empire itself was able to recover and thrive for several more centuries. Now that's the context of Revelation chapter 13. And in its first century context, this passage is very easy to understand and makes a great deal of sense. Now here's the key issue for us tonight. Does this text in Revelation 13 even mention the Antichrist? The simple fact of the matter is that none of the passages that are commonly used from Scripture to teach about the Antichrist even use that term. In fact, here on one slide, I'm going to put all of the verses in the Bible that mention this term, Antichrist. 1 John 2.16, children is the last hour. Just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. Then 1 John 2.22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Then 1 John 4, verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. And then finally, 2 John, verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Here are the only four places in the Bible where this term is used. And again, when you consider the context of the first century, 
when this teaching was given, it's very clear what the Bible is referring to when it talks about Antichrist or Antichrists. In the time of the New Testament, one of the very strong philosophical beliefs among the pagans was that the material world was inherently evil and corrupt. This is one of the reasons that pagans almost universally abhorred the notion of a bodily resurrection from the dead. They thought of death as a great release of the spirit from the prison of the body. They could not imagine ever wanting to return to it. Well, what if you combine that kind of belief with Christianity? What would the result be? I mean, Christianity is predicated on a couple of vital moments that happened in time and in flesh. The birth of Jesus, the incarnation when he takes human form, the crucifixion when he is put to death and our sins are put on his body on the cross, his resurrection from the dead when he comes out of the grave in bodily form. If you took the view that you wanted to believe in Jesus and yet you believed that anything fleshly or material was inherently evil, you would end up denying that Jesus was ever actually physically born or that he actually ever really died on the cross or that he was ever raised bodily from the grave. And if you deny those three things, what is left of Christianity? So one of the early heresies that the Christians had to deal with was a heresy that said that essentially Jesus was just a man, that the Christ spirit came upon him after his baptism, but that just before he died on the cross, it left, so that you never really had God in the flesh being born and crucified and raised from the dead. Knowing that that is the kind of belief that people in some circles had, think about how much sense these verses make. Like 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as what? As coming in the flesh. That is the issue. And later on in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6, John says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. A strong statement that not only is Jesus' baptism a reality, but also his death on the cross when he shed his blood in order for us to be forgiven of our sins. This is the heresy that John is writing about, which he specifically defines in verse 7 of 2 John as what he calls Antichrist teaching. And so just to summarize, the way the Bible speaks of Antichrist is not of one unique individual, but rather it refers to anyone who denies the truth of Jesus' existence, and in particular, his fleshly existence, as somebody who was born and crucified and rose again from the dead. And finally, I would just simply say this. The beast of Revelation chapter 13 is dead. Nero died and learned firsthand that he was not truly a god. And the Roman Empire, like all empires, was swept away by the pages of history unfolding as new and different kingdoms came into power. Now, I want to say one more thing just before we conclude uh, tonight. Actually, I want to say a couple of more things before we conclude tonight. I believe that we as Christians 
should have such a strong sense of biblical literacy that first of all, we are never taken in by some of these email things that are periodically sent out. Some, somewhere down the line, there'll be something else that comes, comes along that triggers another wave of this, these sorts of things. And then in fact, <coughs> we should use this as an opportunity to engage people in conversation and to, to show them in a, in a logical and patient way when you look at the Bible in its context what these passages are in fact really talking about. But I think to make tonight's lesson practical for us, it would be important for us to be challenged by what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Our time is so different from the first century in which the choice to be a convicted and open follower of Jesus is something that we can approach very casually. Because at least on the surface there is so little at stake. I mean if you understand eternity... And the prospect of judgment, everything is at stake. There's nothing of value that isn't at stake. But I just mean there is no pressing need in time right now to have to line up and make a decision. We all think that we have all kinds of time. But that is not what Jesus says. Jesus knows what it is that we lack, as we talked about in the sermon this morning. And he knows whether we are really committed to following him or we're just pretending. And I hope that tonight, as we looked at some things that I suppose you could say are kind of an academic subject, that we don't allow that fact to obscure the very real and practical sense in which we choose either to be one who is with Christ or one who is truly against him. Tonight, if you need to make any kind of response as somebody who either wants to become a Christian or someone who is a child of God needs to repent and turn back to the Lord. We certainly want to help you to do that right now while we stand and sing together.